So, welcome everybody to, uh, to this uh, seminar, which is hosted by uh, the Middle East Center in cooperation with Fosahat. Uh, we'll allow Zaina to say just a few words about uh, the festival before I introduce uh, this particular session. To the Middle East Center, my name is uh, Zaina Bali, and I'm the uh, managing director of Masahat for Arab Culture in Exile, and we're very glad to be hosting this breakfast seminar in collaboration with Prio and the Middle East Center. Uh, maybe we've been collaborating since 2015, since we started. So um, this is a partnership that we're very proud of. I just wanted to tell you very quickly that this event is part of the Masahat Festival for uh, Arab Arts and Culture that just started yesterday. So I encourage you all to grab a brochure and check out the rest of the events. The theme of this year is uh, remembering. So it's very fitting for the seminar today. Uh, and we have a couple of really super interesting, I mean, this is a very interesting event as well, but we also have many more, <laughs> many more interesting events. Uh, later today, there is also a lecture at Dijkman Bjorvika for free. It's uh, almost sold out with um, one, of the, one of Egypt's most prominent historians, Khaled Fahmi. So you can maybe catch the last few tickets if you want to come. Tomorrow, there's also a seminar at National Museum, National Museum. Sunday, there's also film days and a talk with the artistic director of uh, ITFA, the world's largest documentary festival, Orwan uh, Arabia at Vega Sin. So just encourage you to take a look at the brochure and please feel free to join us at the rest of the festival. Thank you, Jörg. Thank you. And since we've been cooperating for so long, I can tell you that everything that they arrange is great. So uh, all, all the other events will be great as well, and, and uh, I'm pretty sure this one will be uh, too. So uh, with that, I just want to kind of uh, start this event. So this is, uh, as we said, co-arranged with the, the Prio Middle East Center. Uh, we've been a center for uh, quite some, some years, and this uh, breakfast seminar format is something uh, we've been doing uh, since the start. Uh, we publish policy briefs and, and academic articles uh, regularly, so please follow our, our webpage for, for our research. What we're doing here today is we're going to talk about memory and the political presence of past events, and it's two very, very momentous events uh, we're, we're talking about. This year marks the 20th anniversary of uh, the invasion of Iraq and 30 years since uh, the Oslo peace process started. And while, of course, these two themes, the war and, and the peace, are, in a sense, supposed to be diametrically opposed, they both carry with them this history of uh, tragical uh, of consequences. Um, and so today's event is really to reflect upon uh, how these two momentous events have left scars uh, in the Middle East that we live with uh, today. Um, and, of course, the, the typical saying is that, you know, the rest is history. But I think it's, it's safe to say that the opposite is, in fact, true. Um, the past is very much uh, present in, in today's world. Uh, I just came back from, from Palestine myself two days ago, and it's very, very clear that the landscape of Oslo is is there. I mean, uh, we often hear the phrase, you know, Oslo is dead, but it, it very much isn't. Um, and I think it's, it's very much same to say, safe to say the same about Iraq. That invasion is, is very much uh, present uh, on the ground. Um, and of course, just to, to kind of connect the idea of, of peace and, and war, it's, it's telling. It might be an apocryphal story, but 
the original name for the American invasion of Iraq was evidently Operation Iraqi Liberation, uh, which, of course, is the unfortunate acronym OIL. So they changed it to Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, but whether you call it OIL or OIF, it's the same problem. Um, it, it left something that definitely wasn't liberation and definitely wasn't uh, freedom. So to set us off with reflections upon this, I'm very happy to introduce Aida al Kaisi. Uh, who is a researcher at SOAS, has her PhD from SOAS, and is a uh, um, prominent thinker about ethics in journalism, and has co-founded, just let me sure I get the name right, uh, the independent media platform of Iraq, Jumar. Um, so I'm very happy to introduce you, and I look forward to hearing your, your presentation. So what we'll do is we'll have uh, her presentation first, followed by Nadim Khouri, who I'll introduce then. Uh, and then we'll do a small discussion in the panel, and we'll open, open the floor for questions from the audience. So please, Aida. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, it's my first time at Masahat. Um, so I am going to talk, so as uh, Jorgen said, I'm an academic um, and researcher um, at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, I'm also um, a journalist and I work on media development in Iraq, but also across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I uh, co-founded Jamar, which is an independent um, Iraqi media initiative, two years ago. Um, and we launched the platform in October uh, 22, so we're just coming up to our first birthday. Um, I've kind of got a presentation of two halves. Um, I'm going to talk in the first half about the sort of theme of the conference, which is sort of historical memory and that, what that means um, in Iraq and to Iraqis now. Um, and then in the second half, I'm going to talk about how our uh, interactions with historical memory um, and Iraq and Iraqis led us to found Jamar and what Jamar, how Jamar is contributing. Uh, to future memories um, of Iraq. Um, so I'm going to talk for the first 10 minutes, but then there's going to be a bit more video and interaction in the second half, so, uh, so, so bear with me. So again, just to frame what we're talking about in this idea of historical memory, this idea of past, um, I looked up a sort of generic uh, definition of historical memory because we all have different understandings of what it might mean. Uh, I'm working from this idea that historical memory is defined as the collective understanding that a specific group of people shares about past events, which this group perceives as having shaped its current economic, cultural, social, and political status and identity. So how past events are now impacting on identity and politics now for, for specific groups of people. If we think about that in the context of Iraq, uh, and I just sort of, again, just to frame how we think about Iraq now, um, over the last 100 years, we began with the formation of the modern Iraqi state uh, in the 1920s. In 1958, there was a violent coup which overthrew the monarchy in Iraq, and my parents, uh, that was in 58, that my parents were young then, that was their generation, they remember that coup, they remember that as a, a time of enlightenment in Iraq. Uh, that's when everything changed. 
the coup, uh, there was then another coup 10 years later, which ultimately brought about um, the Ba'ath regime's 30-year uh, rule um, in Iraq, over 30 years rule in Iraq. Uh, and again, different people, different groups of Iraqis have different memories of that. Of that. We have the war with Iran, which ran throughout the whole of the 1980s. So you can see, like, every decade now we're talking about huge seismic events which will have an impact on structural conditions, uh, living conditions, practical day-to-day -day life, but also, obviously, identities. So then we had the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. This was followed by the invasion of Kuwait in 1990 by Saddam Hussein. Um, and... Throughout the 90s, up until 2003, there was a period of brutal sanctions, which many, many people see as the, uh, a period of time which had the, the sort of largest and most significant impact on Iraq today, because that, that period of sanctions saw very little development or growth um, in Iraq um, in a number of different areas, key areas, health, education, and obviously also kind of structural building um, of, of the country after a war. Then in 2003, you had the invasion of Iraq. Uh, following that, uh, less known to a lot of people, three years after that, there was a two-year um, civil war in Iraq, um, which brought about a huge destruction. And if that's not enough, <laughs> we then had um, the uh, incursion of ISIS into Mosul in 2014, and then another three-year uh, aerial and ground war that took place um, in Iraq. So there's a series of key events um, in Iraqi history, in modern Iraqi history. And I'm just looking at the last 100 years. I'm not even going back to the Ottomans, and, um, but I'm thinking about the generations of Iraqis that are present and alive today and what these events mean to them and on their lives. Um, we're talking now, because it's 2003 and because it's, because it's 2023 and because it's 20 years since the invasion, there's been a lot of talk about how the 2003 is arguably the most significant of all of these events in terms of shaping Iraq's current governance structures, in terms of shaping cultural and social uh, systems in Iraq, um, in terms of shaping political status and identity. And just to give you a very, very, very quick summary of what happened, so much happens has happened since 2003, but not only did that invasion bring the end of a very long uh, dictatorship in Iraq, um, but also what happened was is that the Americans, aided by groups of Iraqi exiled um, opposition leaders um, who became then political leaders, uh, created these new systems of, of governance. Um, you know, parliaments, government, uh, ministries, they were all, the whole, every, all of the structures that were built by or kind of managed by the Ba'ath regime were, were broken down um, and um, new systems were created and they were largely based on ethnic and sectarian identity. Um, and this is, this, is, this is, again, we can start to see how these events and how these kind of political systems uh, are also then starting to impact on, on the identity of, of people in Iraq. 
thinking about the media, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationship between the media and, and, and sort of memory. Um, after years, so under um, the Ba'ath regime and under Saddam Hussein, and even prior to that, actually, the, the media had uh, been seen as a, a sort of a tool for propaganda, government propaganda. Um, so the history of the media in Iraq had been very much that. Um, but after 2003, as part of this sort of democracy experiment that took place in Iraq, um, media channels, uh, cultural production, the arts, they were all given an opportunity to flourish. So we saw pluralism um, in, in Iraq, whereas up until 2003, even though Al Jazeera was actually very pro um, the Iraqi regime, you couldn't even get Al Jazeera in Iraq, uh, whereas obviously the rest of the region was starting to enjoy those kind of transnational channels. But after 2003, we saw a kind of a huge uh, growth in pluralism. Uh, over 100 television channels registered in the two years after 2003, and we now have over 50 um, in Iraq. The lack of concern for any kind of regulation of um, that media, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm using the media as an example, but actually everything that happened in the media uh, landscape is very much reflective of what happened in other areas, such as health and education um, and, and, uh, and governments generally, services uh, delivery. So the lack of concern with regulation meant that anyone was able to open a media channel, uh, politician or would-be politician uh, or otherwise. Um, and there was no um, concern with establishing media platforms that would reflect the interests and needs of the different and diverse groups in Iraq. Uh, so what we now have and, 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 and sort of what's, been ha what's happened over the last 20 years is this kind of scene which is uh, a very partisan, politicized media, uh, that is, at, be at best, I would say, partisan politicized media, but at worst, the media has played a very significant role in some of the violent events that have taken place in Iraq over the last 20 years, and, and, pr and prior to that. So now, just going back a little bit to this idea of historical memory um, and this idea of past events and how they impact on specific groups, I just want to think a little bit about who these groups of Iraqis are, because there is no one... Uh, group of Iraqi. We were just talking about this only a few minutes ago. There is no one Iraqi. Um, with all of these different events have come so many different um, types of displacement. Uh, there are exiled and diaspora groups of Iraqis around the world. Um, and because they left at different times and for different political reasons, they don't necessarily um, have a shared identity or collective historical memory. So we remember things in different ways. Um, so we're, we're of the group that left after the invasion of Kuwait in the early 90s, and we're a very different group to the group who left in 2003, and to the group who left in 2006 in the sectarian war, and to the groups that left in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and again, uh, if we think about what creates historical memory, I'll go on to this in a little bit, it, we start to think then about how we all have these different memories of different times. Even internally in Iraq, uh, what we now have is we have this kind of decades of conflict and war, plus a climate crisis, which, is, which has been exasperated by um, a lack of good governance in the country, which means internal displacement is, is rife. People are moving around constantly. 
disease and death and a changing demography again all means that our memories, our collective memory in Iraq is really displaced and dispersed as well. Again, thinking about demography in Iraq, this is a huge number. 60% of Iraqis now living in Iraq are under the age of 25. So that means over half of the population were, have no memory of what happened in 2003. Um, and that's quite significant. So that, that number, just putting that in terms of population numbers, that's 27 million Iraqis who have no memory of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which took place 20 years ago. And the 2003 invasion, you probably all came across uh, coverage in the media. Uh, there were uh, these kind of commemorative issues uh, in, I mean, I, I'm very close to The Guardian and the BBC. They all had commemorative issues. Uh, academics and policymakers held conferences about what's happened in the last 20 years. Uh, think tanks produced policy papers. Uh, where did it go wrong? You know, there was all, all of this kind of huge attention um, on the 2003 invasion. There was interviews with the generals, with the military leaders. There was even pieces in some publications where they interviewed Iraqi citizens to find out what they thought about the invasion. Now I was so, and, the, and it was March uh, 2003, and I was in Iraq from March 2023, and I was talking to people. I was actually training because I do a lot of training of journalists um, uh, and uh, and activists in Iraq, uh, and um, I was talking to young people um, who we were training and working with, and I was saying, you know, so, you know, what are your thoughts about the invasion 20 years on? And genuinely, every single person I spoke to was like, which invasion? I mean, someone actually said to me, which war, the Ukraine war? And I was like, wow, this is incredible. So we're all, there's all this attention, everyone's so hyped. And I was actually flying straight from Iraq to Copenhagen because there was a documentary film festival where this amazing uh, filmmaker who's based in Norway, Iraqi filmmaker, Karal Azawi, was showing a film. And I was on a panel to talk about the impact of the invasion on the lives of young people. And none of them were even thinking about it. There was no coverage in the Iraqi media at all in March, some limited bits. But obviously, because of this kind of highly partisan and media landscape, it's not in the interest of them to cover the failures of the leaders that have been chosen and that have been governing um, Iraq for the last 20 years. So it really got me thinking about this idea of, uh, of memory, and I, we, I spoke to, to Zina about it as well, actually. I was like, okay, is it surprising that, you know, these 20, 24, 23, 24-year-old journalists are not even thinking about this kind of such a significant event that's created the Iraq that we see today. Um, but I mean, obviously they weren't alive, you know, or they were one or two years old. So, so maybe it's not that surprising. But, you know, we also develop memories based on what our parents tell us, what older generations tell us. Like when I, when I, when I go back to Iraq, I often think now, I often remember the stories that my parents told me from the 70s and the 80s of going to the cinemas and sleeping on the roof under the stars in Iraq and kind of, you know, and that's not Iraq now, you know. And these, these are the kind of memories that my, my parents uh, passed on to me. Even in my work, when there was a time around kind of 2014, pre, 2000 and, yeah, 2014, 2015, when ISIS had come into Mosul 
and I would do some kind of like focus group research and, and talk to, to young people um, about how they're consuming media and kind of, you know, and, you know, their, their thoughts and reflections on, on Iraq now. Um, and they would say, you know, young people who were born in the late 90s or, you know, kind of mid 90s would say to me, it was much better in the 80s. And it's like, but you weren't even born in the 80s. How do you know? You know, so the, there's all of these kind of, you know, different memories of, of kind of Iraq um, uh, sort of floating around that aren't necessarily what's happening. And this is a problem because education systems in Iraq have been destroyed. Uh, there is very uh, little archival collection of photography art or music and there are there are some initiatives now um, that have started to try and collect and remember um, art music culture etc uh, from that time but but actually the political nature and thinking about going back to the media because that's what I'm sort of interested in this sort of partisan politicized media it's meant that there's been little coverage of all of these kind of events, a little analysis of all of these events that, are so, that have had an impact on the lives of young people in Iraq. And that's, that's a problem. So now, when we think about this 27 million young Iraqis under the age of 25, who have little memory of 2003 and are living in the moment, they associate the sort of state-building exercise of the last 20 years with the context within which they live today which is high unemployment, electricity and water are scarce and expensive. I mean, in some parts of Iraq, water is undrinkable and there's no access to drinking water. I was in Mosul in July. It was minimum 50 degrees the whole time I was there. There was no air conditioning for the four days I was there. I mean, I got to leave, right? But so many people don't. I, I actually got dysentery, <laughs> which, is, which is incredible, you know, um, for, for, for a country like Iraq. There's a cost of living crisis, which we see globally. Um, but, you know, in Iraq, the, the situation is even more amplified because of the lack of services, the lack of efficient services, which are delivered, which aren't delivered by government. And we have this kind of sub-state uh, sort of system that's delivering services in exchange for other things. As I mentioned before, education and health systems have been depleted and mismanaged through corruption and by corrupt politicians in Iraq. Um, so, and that again means that this kind of young generation of Iraqis are, are, are sort of lacking um, what young people around the world come to expect. And then also human rights, women's rights are consistently threatened. Um, activists, journalists, civil society uh, is constantly under threat and that's getting worse. Two months ago in Iraq, the use of the word gender was banned um, by the independent media commission that was set up by uh, the Americans and their um, Iraqi associates in 2003 to regulate the media. So you can see this kind of context that young people are living in and sort of, you know, the issues around it. There has there have been movements since 2010, 2011. We've seen a protest movement in Iraq grow. At times, it's been quashed by, by government, sub-state actors, paramilitary groups, you know, whatever you want to call all of these different, different factions. Um, but in 2019, we did see, October 2019, we did see this kind of surge in the protest movement. It's called Tishreen. 
the 2019 October Tishreen is the Arabic word for October uh, protest movement. Uh, we saw thousands and tens of thousands of Iraqis, young Iraqis, uh, go to the streets demanding change in the systems, demanding change, demanding an end to corruption, and demanding you know, the chances and possibilities that they're seeing people in other countries, young people in other countries, uh, after. Women and men were, were together, and this is in Iraq over the last 15 years. Um, this has been a rare, a rare thing to see. Women and men together setting up camps, permanent camps in main squares in the big cities in southern Iraq, I should say, also. Uh, they didn't take place in, in the Kurdish region or actually in uh, Diyala or, or, or uh, Mosul for, for, for reasons related to recovery from the invasion um, or the incursion by um, ISIS. Uh, the movement, uh, it really, it really st felt like the movement was, was starting to sort of have some impact. The prime minister at the time was down on the streets. He was talking to the, to the protesters, to the activists. Um, it really felt like there was, go there was a sort of moment of change. And actually what's happened then, although the movement, it's, it's ebbing and flowing, what's happened then is that some political parties have been formed from that movement. Uh, and some of them have been elected in government. They fall very take have a very small number of seats in government. But actually, there there this is some steps towards um, towards towards change. But what that protest, what that kind of surge in protest movement, kind of laid bare was this information vacuum um, for young Iraqis. The fact that there wasn't anywhere for them to go to to tell their stories to to talk, talk about what was happening on the streets during the protest movement, to communicate with each other. They were turning to Telegram, social media channels, but there weren't any kind of um, sort of platforms, professional platforms, where they could really sort of talk about their needs and platforms that they felt represented them. So it was out of this protest movement that the idea for Jamar, the independent media initiative that I'm one of the co-founders of, uh, was born. Um, I'll talk to you a little bit about Jamar, but before, uh, there's a, I'm just going to show a short video. Uh, if I can do this. Uh, okay. So, um, so this is a, just a short video about Jamar, but it also has um, some scenes from the protest movement that are taken from Karal Azawi's movie. He's an Iraqi based in Norway. Uh, and I, you can watch the, uh, the film on, uh, online, um, and I urge you to watch it, actually. It's a really moving uh, piece of documentary uh, film about the events that took place in Tishreen and what they mean to young people. Um, so this is the, f the front page of today's Jamar. Um, so we're we are um, we're not a news website. We are uh, we produce features and analysis of um, social issues, political issues that are related to the everyday lives of Iraqis. Uh, we are our core audience is 18 to 30, and the majority are actually 18 to 25. So we are we are very much uh, working with a very young demographic um, and targeting that young demographic of Iraqis who are who were involved in the Tishreen movement. Um, 
because that's our core audience, we work with writers and journalists and content creators who are also 18 to 25. Um, so hopefully what we're also trying to do is sort of develop uh, skills and capacity of a young generation who aren't necessarily getting that through um, their education systems and, and other ways. Um, we, as I say, we launched exactly a year ago on the anniversary of the Tishreen uh, protest movement. Uh, so we're nearly, like next week will be one year old. Um, and and it's, look, it's been a bit, it's been a labor of love. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not easy, right? Um, we, because of this kind of fragmented media scene, um, we, we've had we've had to play around with the way that we do things. We've had to sort of play the social media game a little bit um, and use Instagram and Facebook and think about using things like TikTok to drive people to the website. But we really are starting to see great engagement with our content, um, particularly on, the, on social media, on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, we, we publish... Uh, as well as kind of features analysis of key events, we also publish diaries um, from young people, um, which is a collection of their experiences of things that are happening in Iraq at the moment. Some of them look back at times over the last few years. And in that way, we're hoping that we're sort of creating and collecting um, an archive of the experiences of young people in Iraq today. Um, because of the highly politicized media scene in Iraq, we, we are internationally funded. Um, and again, th this, is, this is something that we need to think about, um, you know, how a platform like Jamar can start to contribute um, to uh, the Iraqi economy and start to build opportunities outside of relying on um, the international community um, and funding in that regard. I think I've probably come up to my time, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, we couldn't, I couldn't show you Jamar, but the website is Jamar, J-U-M-M-A-R dot media. So please have a look at it. It is largely in, in Arabic, but there is some translated copy in English as well. So thanks very much. So with that, uh, we'll move on to the, the peace side of the, the coin. Uh, so it's a pleasure to introduce Nadim uh, Khouri, who is a Palestinian uh, scholar uh, who grew up in, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Uh, has a PhD from the University of uh, Virginia and currently works at the Norwegian Inland University of Applied Sciences, but is also affiliated to PRIO uh, through various projects. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll leave it to you to talk about Oslo, and then we'll have a discussion afterwards. It's a bit early in the morning, but thank you all for, for being here and PRIO for hosting and Masahat for having me. I'm also on the board of Masahat, so just some nepotism going on and where I get to invite myself to speak, but uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for this. Um, so my, uh, I want to begin with, um, let me see, it's, okay. I want to begin with, so I apologize, maybe the text is a bit too small, with some images that are very familiar to you, but are familiar to me also as a Palestinian who grew up, and that kind of shaped my political imaginary. The first one is one we've all witnessed, so this is a current memory. It's also Corona, so I'm sure we were all sitting on our couches on that dreadful day as we watched the Abraham Accords unfold and Trump sign a peace agreement or mediate a peace agreement between Israel, Bahrain, and the UAE. The second image is one we've commemorated recently, 30 years after, one that I saw as a 12-year-old, as a 
and that also, of course, shaped my imaginary because my life changed after Oslo in good, but then extremely horrible ways, where Arafat and Rabin signed a peace agreement under the auspices of the US government. And then there's an image that I did not witness. I'm not that old. But that I've inherited, and that was very present in our collective imaginary, and that my father has seen, of Carter mediating in a peace agreement between Egypt and Israel. The first image I witnessed, like my father's, who witnessed the last image, it was one of betrayal. And actually, the first thing that came to my mind when I saw Trump oversee that peace agreement between Bahrain, the UAE, and Israel was this image of Carter meeting a, a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. And I really felt, because he would tell me how he experienced this as a betrayal, he, he studied in Egypt, and it really became extra vivid to me of how this betrayal was felt. Since it's quite early in the morning, I thought I'll just play a game with you of spot the difference, right? So it's a bit early. So there are similarities, obviously. One similarity is that this is being mediated by an American superpower whose growth and hegemony grows exponentially from the, you know, the peace agreement with Egypt onwards in the region. And maybe Trump's you know, peace agreement symbolizes kind of the logical culmination of this hegemony in the region. There are also some symbolic differences. So you'll notice the uncanny desire amongst Americans to conclude peace agreements mid-September. So all three of them happened in mid-September, which was quite, maybe there's something to, to be seen there. Symbolically as well, there's the, the figure of Abraham, which actually, if you all the speeches refer to Abraham, and then the Trump Accord is famously called the Abraham Accords. But there are obviously similarities, and one big difference, sorry, just obviously differences, and one big difference is that in the first image and in the last, Palestinians are absent. And this raises the question, are we returning to the past? Are we returning to a diplomatic formula where once again Palestinians are excluded slash erased? And as I, you know, in typical academic form, my answer is yes and no. That's how it is usually done. So let me begin. Okay, this is a brief, and I apologize, Jurgen, since this is your field of specialty. Just briefly run you through how Palestinians were excluded through peace then partially included, and then excluded again. So how were Palestinians dissolved through peace, as in solved by dissolving them and ridding of the Palestinian question as a question of, of, uh, of legitimate rights and self-determination? One classic way in which the Palestinians were excluded from diplomatic initiatives was by reducing them to, to a humanitarian issue. Right? The PLO emerged very much as a reaction to this. Is we are not refugees. We are people fighting for self-determination. But in 48, after Palestinians are ethnically cleansed in the 1948 war, they are reduced to a humanitarian issue. These are refugees that need some kind of help. Whereas before, under the League of Nations, there was still talk about self-determination. There's also obviously the ideological negation of Palestinians. The famous Palestinians do not exist by Golda Meir which erases them as a people who have a right to self-determination. And there's, of course, a war, right? There's a, a, a full-on war against the PLO militarily and diplomatically. And this war is happening between Arab states and Israel, who also issue the, the three no's at Khartoum of no negotiations, no recognition. So these are three ways in which Palestinians do not exist diplomatically. And then 
but this is also done through peace, right? So diplomatic initiatives supposedly to create peace in the region erase Palestinians. So the land for peace formula, the famous resolution 242, originally was designed to exclude Palestinians. We tend to forget this because 242 is the basis of a two-state solution. But the resolution was signed between states, or not signed, it was agreed to, and says it only involves states. Palestinians not having a state meant they were excluded. Another way of excluding Palestinians was to say, well, they, you know, they are a bunch of Arabs who live in the West Bank and Gaza, and we will find potential Arab states to govern them under some autonomous schemes. And famously, Jordan was always kind of the prime candidate to govern, you know, potentially govern Palestinians in autonomous areas in the region. And another way of excluding them diplomatically was by not negotiating with Arabs as a bloc, but negotiating with them bilaterally in a position of force. So that's the, you know, the uh, agreements with Egypt is bilateral negotiations with Egypt bypassing the Palestinian issue altogether. Peace now is between Israel and neighboring countries, and Palestinians could be dealt with at a later stage. Things changed in 1993, right? Now, some Palestinians are included under some conditions. Now, maybe this is why when I grew up and I saw this image, I was empowered. It's a bit shameful to say this now after 30 years of a disastrous peace accords. But there's something very empowering for a 12-year-old to see your national figure suddenly on the White House lawn negotiating or having the power to negotiate your future. And I think many Palestinians live this this way, at least in the West Bank and Gaza, not in the refugees, obviously, who were completely excluded from the agreements. So Oslo did change something in the equation, right? This was the first bilateral negotiation with Israel where Palestinians represented by the PLO were on the table. And that, at the time, was empowering. Of course, it was an illusion. Now the PLO becomes a partner, of course, if it respects conditions A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know. Israelis had zero conditions. Well, they had to, well, they accepted the PLO, so maybe that was a condition, but there were very difficult conditions for the PLO to accept in order to become a negotiating partner. And we know this because there's been a lot of talk about the Oslo Accords recently. The formula for Oslo, as you know, is one of bilateral negotiations that were incremental and that would lead to final status negotiations. What it meant for regional peace was that this was an inside-out approach. Key to peace in the region required going through the Palestinians. That was our also a bargaining chip for Palestinians. It's like, you want peace with them? You go through us. Okay, Egypt, you managed to pull that off, but it won't work with other, other Arab states. That was the belief, at least, of the PLO and one of their bargaining chips. And I think Israelis also believe that as well, which is maybe why they felt that they had to have some kind of engagement with the Palestinians. And you see this happen concretely, right? After Oslo, one year later, there's a peace agreement with Jordan, there's increased cooperation with Arab states who originally boycotted Israel. And then there's even negotiations with Syria, as you know, that, that fail. And then there's the famous Arab peace initiative in 2002, where Saudi Arabia says, give Palestinians a state. We will give you full normalization, not only with Arab states, but with Muslim states. Huge package, which Saudi gives for free without even negotiating with Israelis, which is a very poor negotiation strategy. But nonetheless, it's the kind of the offer on the table. And all this follows from the idea that Palestinians are key to regional peace. Fast forward to today's times, 
and the Abraham Accords. Now, the formula of inside out is reversed or abandoned. Palestinians are no longer key for regional peace, which is why perhaps I felt this is a betrayal, but I also felt completely disempowered as a Palestinian. It's like I felt maybe symbolically we were part of a larger equation, and even that was no longer the case. And now what you claim is actually, no, it's an outside-in approach where if you sign peace regionally, this will help somehow Israeli-Palestinian negotiations you know, get better. But what it does on the ground, obviously, is just exclude and erase Palestinians in a different way. So now peace, once again, in a weird echo to the past, is used to erase and exclude Palestinians. And this is explicitly said. So recently, the Norwegian foreign minister, Annika Hütfeldt, was in Israel. And the Israeli minister of foreign affairs, Eli Cohen, said this to her. States and actors that don't participate in expanding and deepening the circle of peace and normalization will simply be left out and become irrelevant. Now, becoming irrelevant is a political move, but coming from the mouth of a racist right-wing Israeli minister, it also echoes ideological negations of Palestinians as a people, which is what also grounded the negation of Palestinians as a people in the, you know, prior, in the 60s and 70s. Is why negotiate with them if they're not a people? They're just you know, individuals to be, that live on a land which is Jewish through and through. And one might ask here, you know, well, what about Trump's deal of the century? I, you know, some Israelis would say this is like, that's not true. Trump gave you a deal, you rejected it, and therefore we had to go speak to the Arabs. We can talk about this later, but we don't, you, know, you don't need much knowledge to know that the Trump deal of the century had nothing to do with the Palestinians. It was basically a deal that said, we get rid of, you know, you don't negotiate settlements, you don't negotiate Jerusalem, you don't negotiate refugees, and you come to the table, you accept it, or you leave it. So the Trump plan that, you know, preceded the Abraham Accords was very much another way of negating Palestinians. Now, obviously, there are important differences, right? So although there's echoes of the past, there's ways of excluding Palestinians and erasing them through peace, there are, these are very different, right? We're not back to the 70s and 80s. First of all, the temperature of the peace is different, right? The peace with Egypt was cold and still is. It's an agreement amongst leaders, security officials. It barely trickles down to business elites and so forth. Whereas the peace with the UAE and Bahrain is said to be a warm peace. There's billions of dollars worth of investment and trade. If you follow social media, which I don't, but my wife does, so I try to, you know, I follow her account sometimes. <laughs> and then you see all these, like, you know, Israelis hugging Emiratis, and they're going there, and they're opening media centers, and it's, it's wonderful. Artists exchange shitty songs, and so there's some, some, you know, you don't see that, right? You don't see Egyptian artists make a song, a pop song, with an Israeli one, because they, that's, you know, if you, if you value your life, you would think otherwise. This does not happen with the UAE. Obviously, the big difference is also geopolitical, right? So the Cold War is very much the setting for the peace with Egypt. And it's a tipping point of the Cold War in the Middle East, because now the leading country in the Arab world, Egypt tips on the American side. With the Abraham Accord, the context is a new Cold War, where Iran is the main foe. And the warming relations between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel 
very much emerged after Oslo, but also in response to a growing Iranian threat that brings Israel and the UAE closer together. There's also, as I said, shift in regional leadership, right? Whereas previously, Egypt was the head of the Arab world. Today, this is moving towards Gulf states who are now competing for regional leadership. And, is, and Egypt, ironically, now is just always playing catch up, right? Sucking up to the Saudis and to the Gulf states. What also changes, and that's important, is that this is no longer called land for peace, which, as you know, was the famous formula for the peace process, where, whereby Israel relinquishes land in, in, you know, in, uh, in exchange for recognition and peace. Now the formula is called peace for peace, for the simple reason that the UAE and Bahrain and countries like that have no land. They don't have any land to exchange with Israel, right? So they are far away from the, from the territory itself. What it actually is, of course, is a, it's weapons for peace, because it's a peace agreement which is premised on the exchange of weaponry. And this starts already back post-Oslo, with the UAE wanting F-16s, and now it's the UAE wanting F-35s from the US in exchange, and Reaper drones and all sorts of weaponry, advanced weaponry from the US in exchange for a normalization agreement with Israel. They still did not get the F-35s, which is probably, you know, a bad deal for the UAE, but I, I don't know the technicalities for this, but they're still waiting to receive them. It's also, of course, a surveillance technology for peace agreement, because one main thing that the Israelis can negotiate with the, with the, the UAE is surveillance technology, like Pegasus and others. And the UAE is very interested in that, so they get this technology in exchange for so-called peace. It's also an agreement for maintaining authoritarian regimes in the name of peace. Right, this is concluded, don't forget, by a right-wing fanatic in the, on the, in the White House with Netanyahu and authoritarian governments in the Gulf. So this is kind of a, an agreement amongst right-wing governments to maintain and sustain their systems and then give themselves legitimacy, right? Because they can go back home and say, look, I created peace, whereas Obama only created war in the region, war as in by giving Iran a bit more power, a bit more leeway. I create peace. But what I do is I maintain authoritarianism in exchange. And if there's land for peace, well, it's other people's lands. So you negotiate the Syrian Golan Heights, which the US, you know, I mean, the Israelis have now officially annexed with the blessings of the United States. You give Morocco Western Sahara, and you give Palestinian lands to the Israelis. And finally, the only thing given to the Palestinians is uh, freezing the annexation of the West Bank for peace. That's the generous offer that Palestinians get. And you only get it for four years, so it's a limited offer in time and in space. And the timing is actually interesting, right? Because four years, this is 2020, we're 2024. This tells you that this is going to go back on the table again, and there will be further normalization agreements done where Israelis will freeze annexation for another four years and maybe two years, and every two to four years, another Arab state will join, and Israelis will freeze annexation while continuing their settlements uh, expansion on the ground. Now, what about the Biden administration? Because some people could say, well, this was unique to Trump, that the Biden administration broke away with Trump's policy domestically and internationally. For the Europeans here, I'm sure the the Americans not leaving NATO is no longer a threat, and Norwegians feel very reassured by that. But in the Middle East, Biden has not really broken away with Trump. And he's actually furthering the Abraham Accords. 
The only difference is rhetorical. He refuses to call it Abraham Accords. That's the only symbolic difference. But he's further normalizing, uh, I mean, uh, for pushing normalization agreements in the region. He's created a new position to further normalization. And there's a bipartisan bill in Congress called the Israel Normalization Act that was put, uh, that submitted to Congress in 2021, and that passed, I think, a year ago. And the position encourages normalization agreements between Israel and neighboring Arab states. And this brings us to something else much discussed today, talks of a Saudi and Israeli deal and how that could potentially further normalization and exclusion of Palestinians. So this is, we still don't know exactly the, the details of these negotiations, but one could easily see here a logical continuation of Trump's foreign policy, right? Where you push for normalization and you don't see the Palestinians as crucial to the equation, despite what they say. But it is a question, like how will they further exclude the Palestinians? Because Biden, as opposed to Trump, will still say, well, the Palestinians matter, but how will they matter, I think, is the question. And I don't see much hope there. And there's also the difference between Saudis and the UAE and Bahrain. The Saudi Arabia is a much bigger player, symbolically speaking. So the Saudis will demand more, and they have demanded more. They're demanding things like a civil nuclear program, they're demanding a mutual security pact with the US. They're demanding a lot because they know that they have a lot to bring to the table. But what are they willing to give Palestinians? That's not very clear as well. And here one could also ask, what about the Palestinian Authority? You know, what are they doing to not be excluded? Well, not much. I mean, for the Abraham Accords, you, they were taken by surprise, and then they just boycotted them. Now, with the Saudi negotiations, it seems that they've maybe accepted the equation because there's been a lot of talks of, between Abbas and MBS because in a way, Abbas has understood that he, there's nothing to do on the negotiating table, which makes him a bit more, more relevant than he already is. And he's asking, he's negotiating through Mohammed bin Salman for things like opening an embassy in East Jerusalem, getting some territory back from the Israelis and some other things. Nothing, peanuts. So let me conclude. And the conclusion is that Palestinians exist in and out of peace. So prior to the peace, as also peace accords, they do not exist diplomatically. They come to exist through Oslo, and then they cease to exist again with the Abraham Accords. This is not only a diplomatic issue either. It's not like that the PLO becomes diplomatic through peace. I think there's also an existential issue, right? That Palestinians only become relevant as a people through peace agreements that favor the great powers in the region. And once they are no longer part of this equation, they stop existing. And they're almost reduced back to human humanitarian issue, like after 48. Human and that's Trump. I mean, Trump offers something like $50 billion of investments in Palestine or some crazy number. That, I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? What does it mean to just throw $50 billion on Palestinians and where do you get this from? But that's, again, reducing Palestinians to humanitarian issue. Right? These are people who are not in need of justice. They have no cause. Just give them a bit of money and things will kind of resolve themselves. Of course, this does not, this does not apply to Israel, who is diplomatically but also existentially relevant in itself with or without peace agreements, right? It's, it's, it's relationship with Israel, with Norway, with Arab states, it's completely independent of a peace agreement. 
whereas Palestinians, that's not the case. What does this mean for the future? Well, this is something we could discuss. I think, so when, uh, Gurgen, you said the Oslo peace process, the Oslo is very much ongoing as a structure. Yes, of course, the process. But I think this really marks the actual official death of the Oslo peace process in a way. Is when the people who, the architects behind it just say, okay, we just completely get rid of this equation. And now the Palestinians, we don't treat them as key to regional peace anymore. And one could ask, is this also the end of the PA as an entity whose sole purpose is to negotiate a peace agreement, right? That's why it exists. It has no other, and, and to administer and govern, you know, areas in the West Bank and Gaza. But what does this mean for, mean for the PA, given these new regional normalization deals, is a question worthwhile asking. And of course, what does this mean regionally? Because what I did is I zoomed in on the Palestinian issue but when you zoom out, you realize this is just part of larger regional shifts in the region that are also extremely important and perhaps really shaping, they, they are the ones that are uh, changing these equations when it comes to peace. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for two, please, very great uh, talks. <clears throat> just wanted to, to clarify when I said Oslo is very much alive and I think this is a very important distinction that we make between Oslo as a structure as the agreement that was reached and Oslo as a process and I think this is very much misunderstood because when we talk about you know Oslo is dead and I contend no no it's it's alive I'm talking about the structure is alive and the process is dead um, on the other hand, sometimes we hear kind of the opposite, right? No, no, uh, the, the process is really alive. We're, we're actually talking. And it's like, well, which world are you in? <laughs> we need to revive Oslo. And it's like, yeah, well, but which part of Oslo? So it's, it's, uh, it's important, to, I think, to, to distinguish between those because, I mean, area A, B, and C, that is Oslo. Uh, but Oslo is also a process. So it's like the, the good part of Oslo, the empowering, which you talked about, that's the dead part. The bad part of Oslo, which is the structures, the divisions, the, the, the PA instead of the PLO, the misrepresentation, that's alive. And that's really <laughs> problematic. But to get to questions, um, I really want to pick up on a point you had, Ida, but I want to pose it to Nadim, which is because you talked about the fact that since the invasion happened 30 years ago, and because there's this youth bulge, as we call it in demography, most Iraqis, I mean, the, the largest proportion of Iraqis don't remember the invasion, which would be the same for Oslo in Palestine. Palestine also has a youth bulge. This happened 30 years ago. But for me, there's like a double memory gap in a sense. One is most Palestinians then don't remember the positive, empowering part of Oslo. But when we do 2003, let's say, as a cutoff point, it means that most Palestinians don't remember the most violent part either. They don't remember the Second Intifada. So what does this kind of double forgetting or double lack of, of actual physical memory, in a sense, do for how Palestinians relate to today's world? That's my question to you, building, building on what you said. And, and then to, to a question to you, Aida, which is, relates to what you started talking about, about these traumatic, seismic events happening every decade. And... Iraqi identity, both in exile and at home, relate to kind of which generation are you from? And we usually think about Iraq being divided 
a, a long sectarian, religious, political lines, right? But what does this generational divide do for Iraqi identity, right? It, how does that reflect, you know, which Iraq do you remember for creating a unified Iraqi identity and moving forward on like a national platform and not a, a fractured platform? So I guess we can... No, I think I spoke already, so... Yeah, okay, <laughs> let's start with that then and with you. And then I'll... Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Religiously, ah, thank you. Religiously, um, uh, you know, gender, um, geographically, the urban-rural divide is real. Um, you know, the, the north-south, uh, east-west, you know, there's so many different groups in Iraq that... This idea, and I think this is this is this has been the sort of issue of this idea of this kind of one national identity in Iraq, maybe isn't necessarily the the, the answer. Um, there, so under the regime of Saddam Hussein, for example, people now say, you know, and particularly in this sort of height of the sectarian uh, uh, war, and then kind of following on with the kind of successive governments who use this kind of sectarian identity as a way. Um, as a way of establishing power. Um, there was all of this talk of how under Saddam Hussein, we didn't have this Sunni Shia divide, you know, and, uh, but actually, uh, you know, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't, these issues didn't exist. It's since the 2003 invasion, the Americans did it and kind of, you know, but actually the fact that, you know, under Saddam Hussein, we didn't talk about the differences between Sunnis and Shias also created these issues, you know. Forget about what he did to the Kurds and kind of other, you know, Christians and other groups in Iraq as well. So, so yes, I, 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 and, and I think for me what, what, Iraq, what, what, what I'd like to see are platforms or or vehicles or initiatives or uh yeah that that bring all of these different diverse experiences to the fore so we can hear them all um equally uh in different ways in accessible ways uh you know so for example on jamar one of the things that we want to do but we haven't we haven't got the resources to do at the moment is you know thinking about those young iraqis who live in the diaspora who don't speak arabic how do we bring our content to them you know the ones you know i i meet them in in london uh they they want to go back to iraq they're like we're so interested you know uh, there's uh, a young amazing uh, iraqi chef who went to Iraq for the first time in London, who went to Iraq for the first time um, a few months ago and was amazed. And he's been cooking Iraqi food that he learned from his parents for, for 10 years. Uh, his, he's called Jum'ah Kitchen. Uh, and uh, he's really, he's been on television and in London and everything. And he went back to Iraq for the first time. And it was his first experience of, of Iraq and Iraqi culture, even though it's been seeped in him for, since he was born. Um, so I think for me, it's more about finding different ways. So, you know, I, I'm so happy that we've, we've, we've been able to launch Jamar, but there needs to be about 150 other Jamars, you know, to really get those, those different um, kind of experiences and voices across. So plural, plurality as a strength rather than as a dividing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so when you pointed it out, this, this, I mean, it's quite shocking that they don't remember the invasion, you know, when it happened there. And everybody's remembering it here because it's so, it, that's, it's, that economy is super interesting. And I think something similar in, in Palestine exists as well. So when you asked people forget, well, they forget Oslo and they forget 2003. So I'll answer about 
the first part, forgetting 2003, you see that in the new wave of violence, which is resistance, you know, self-defense by Palestinians in, in their towns, in Nablus, in Jenin, in Gaza. Because especially Nablus and Jenin, I think, in the West Bank, this is a generation of fighters who have not lived the Second Intifada. You know, when the Second Intifada was devastated for Palestinians, and it, that's how the Israelis operate, it's just you, you act, you know, extremely violently, and then people forget because, you know, they don't want to repeat what happened because it's so costly economically, for infrastructure. I mean, you know, this happened after 2000. 2000 was, I come from Bethlehem. There was a huge project called Bethlehem 2000. Tons of money being invested in infrastructure. Everything destroyed in 2003. And not, I mean, before that, actually, the first, second intifada emerges before. And my dad is an architect, and he was so proud of all these buildings he built, and he was devastated to see everything destroyed in a year. All this has been forgotten by this new generation. So they don't, they don't know the costs, and they also don't care because they, they grew up in an even more nihilistic environment. And for them, now it's almost just pure issue of self-defense. It's like we need to do everything to defend ourselves because the PA obviously can't do it for them. So this forgetfulness translates into kind of, you know, all the, this, uh, the resistance, the military resistance that's happening on the ground. Then forgetting also, I think, that, so that's, I'll just give you my experience. So I... I it was empowering as a child, because I was ignorant and stupid. I did not read enough <laughs> at the time. But all of us were, we were fooled by it. I mean, I think if you read history now, you understand what, what a, what a, how deceptive it was. But when I came back to Palestine to teach after my PhD, I had these students. And it was wonderful to reconnect with a new generation of Palestinians. And we were talking about something about the Intifada. And I said, yes, I remember the incursions and the soldiers coming in. And then a student said, where was the Palestinian police? And I said, the Palestinian police during the Intifada? It's like, yeah, I'm like, but they weren't here. They were in exile, and then they came after Oslo. So these people could not remember a time before the PA, which for me, I really remember a time pre-Palestinian Authority and post. So it really shapes your understanding of things, and it really makes a big difference, right? And, and these peoples are. So I think history in that sense and generational memory is, is, is crucial for shaping politics and understanding and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just thinking, like, oh, I'm mic'd up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a super interesting point, because I'm just thinking, you know, pre-Oslo, the idea was our leaders are in exile, we want them home. Post-Oslo, it's our leaders are here, but they're failing us. Yeah. And that creates a huge difference in how you identify with your leadership. And sorry, just not to say a bit more, it's also a, this, a disempowerment it creates. When I said it was empowering for a 12-year-old to see their national leader appear at the White House is because this idea that we have our leaders in exile and they're coming and they're fighting on our behalf. And today, complete hopelessness. Mm. There's nothing. Like, you don't have a PLO in exile, which is that you have nothing. So the younger generation is also growing up in this kind of, like, political vacuum, which is very, very frightening in that sense. I just wanted to say that we have a similar uh, point in, in recent Iraqi history, which is maybe some people might remember it. In 2005, when Iraqis around the, in Iraq and, ar and around the world voted for the first time in elections, and everyone went and pressed their thumb and uh, did their fingerprints, and there was all these pictures of Iraqis showing their fingerprints that they'd voted. And again, there was a sense of, you know, and even I remember my dad, you know, he was you know, devastated by the invasion. But actually, at that, at that point, he was like, you know, may, maybe, maybe there's a chance. We, you know, first time we've got to vote, you know, and kind of, you know, and then, and then yeah, again, destroyed. Yeah. 
Thanks. We have, we have time for questions from uh, the audience. If not, we're all prepared to have a more discussion here in the panel. But uh, it's, it's really great to have the opportunity for, for the audience as well. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for this very interesting meeting for Priyo and uh, Masahat. I have a quick question for uh, Aida. Uh, when the revolution broke out in Tunisia in 2011, it reached Egypt, Syria. I thought immediately that it, w it would touch Iraq for the next step, but it didn't happen. So do you have an explanation for it? And a quick comment to Nadim. If uh, you feel like you are alone, uh, just think that uh, Tunisia will always be with you till the end. And we hope the end is a just, lasting, and comprehensive solution. This is what we hope. Let's do two questions at a time. So we have one here. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you very much for this. Very interesting. Uh, I'm Sana from Syria. I work on memory since 10 years now. I have two quick uh, questions for both of you. Um, Nadim, um, do you think we have any benefit from us being abandoned and being excluded? Uh, do you think uh, we have any opportunity for us to, uh, to take things in hand? and to create from zero um, our uh, self-determination. And also to Aida, um, um, do you think also being fragmented? So we have a very common uh, uh, point. It's almost copy-paste, almost, uh, everything you said. So it applies to all of us. So being fragmented um, do you th uh, and having this great uh, doubts about identity. Do you think also we are having any opportunity for us to rethink our identity? Thank you. Yeah, let's answer these and then, then we'll do the next collection. I really have to think about the second question, so I'm going to go to the first question uh, first. Um, yeah, so actually, uh, I, I keep quoting my dad, <laughs> but he's an amazing man. But um, but yeah, I remember my dad when the Arab uprising started. He was like, "They didn't let us have a, <laughs> they didn't let us have an uprising." In 1991, after when the sanction period started in Iraq, there was an a grassroots uprising that took place in southern Iraq, uh, and they asked for support from the West to try and overthrow. Uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein at the time, and they received none, and the uprising was quashed. Um, so grassroots uprisings in Iraq have, have taken place, but there has been very little opportunity for them to, to, to move forward. Similarly, in, in 2010 and 2011, there were some uprisings um, that took place small in Iraq, inspired by the events of the Arab Spring, um, or the Arab uprisings, I should say. Um, but again, I think, and sim I think similar things happened in Jordan, uh, they looked at what was happening in Syria and those uprisings then became um, much quieter. Also in 2010 to 2011, Iraq was still recovering from the sectarian, uh, the civil war um, that had taken place in Iraq between 2006 and 2009, let's say. So, um, so yeah, the opportunities, unfortunately, for any kind of, of sort of grassroots um, initiative to, to change government at that time was not good. What did happen, though, in 2011 was the start of this protest movement, which then became what we now call the Tashreen uh, uh, movement. So in 2011, that's when the trade unions 
um, the uh, some civil society um, activists, they started to go out and um, demand uh, better conditions, better services, and better rights. And that 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 protest movement from 2011 that it's had peaks um, and troughs but 2011 was a peak then there was another peak in 2013 then again in 2015 and and that's where we see 2019 where um, young people actually became a, a bigger part of of that that they, that kind of movement that's been going on for over 10 years now um i'll let you answer the first question and then i'm gonna i'm still thinking <laughs> about the second question well, the first question was that was a, was a reassurance that Tunisia is behind us, and that's uh, very reassuring. So, thank you for this. Um, so, I think you, you you raise a very good point. Is like, is there some advantages to being excluded? So, again, the typical yes and no answer is always comes in handy. Um, so that I think what's happening here, and you saw this in. In 2021, what the Palestinians called the Unity Intifada, they call it a Unity Intifada for the simple reason that for the first time ever, I think, all Palestinians felt affected and acted at the same time spontaneously. Right? You had Palestinians in Israel, the diaspora, refugees, West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza. And what, because you know, I mean, like any other powerful state, Israel works by fragmentation, and that's and. And also, of course, was a way of sealing fragmentation under the veneer of peace. You divide Palestinians. They are separate issues to be. What happens with this is now the Palestinians are excluded en bloc, all of us. So the Palestinian in Ramallah feels very much abandoned the way the Palestinian in Haifa after the passing of the basic uh, the nation law war. Uh, I forgot the name. Where the Israelis basically say, only the Israelis have the right to self-determination. Only Hebrews are uh, the official language. So everybody feels excluded at the same time. And that is, to some degree, is an opportunity, right? To be excluded at the same time, it's, it's like in a classroom where everybody's kind of ejected from the class at the same time. It's an <laughs> opportunity to... Now, the problem is who capitalizes on this, politically speaking? You know, is there... There's room to do so, but who is doing it? And that's the sad part is no one is. Actually, the only people capitalizing on this are the Israelis. They fully understand the dangers that presents, so they be, they're, they're sure to repress it and act upon it. So unfortunately, I don't think that the Palestinian leadership has capitalized on this. And maybe because they can't, because they're the result of fragmentation. Yeah, no, yes, yes, yes. No, no, of course. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just going to give this typical answer because I don't think the issue of fragmented identities is going to be resolved in the political sphere, if I'm honest with you, at the moment with Iraq and Iraqis. This was your question, right? Fragmented identities. Yeah. Yeah. There, I, I think probably, yeah. Yeah, and I think I see that now through arts and culture. Uh, and that kind of production and works such as archiving and kind of, you know, and I think probably that's, it, it feels like the safest way to explore our fragmented identities. Uh, we hope also that through platforms like Jamar, there's a, there's a way that young Iraqis who are less across the world, who are less fragmented because they haven't been part of the political class, might find a way to to find something that unifies them in terms of the future of of them as a generation, but also maybe possibly a, for their country as well. 
I, don't, I don't want to sound hopeless because I am someone who does have hope, but but yeah, but it, arts and culture probably for me is 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 the way forward at the moment. Cultural production. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your uh, answer to the question as well. <laughs> we have a question here. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for the introductions. I mean, it was so rich. So um, we don't have so much words to add, but. Um, um, I'm the ambassador of Palestine to Norway, and um, uh, sorry, I, I can share a lot with uh, for Aida, but uh, for Nadim, uh, I want to go back to, to Oslo. I know that um, the leaders of the PLO were very strong and much stronger before the Oslo agreement being signed. After Oslo, it was limited to a lot of conditions and terms. And um, everybody mentioned, and you mentioned that too, that the process is dead, but Oslo is still alive. I mean, how can you see that Oslo is still alive? And what, as a leadership or as Palestinians, what kind of uh, horizon we can create to put life in this dead body uh, from an uh, academic point of view, from academic perspective? And I will apologize because I have to leave to another appointment, but I want to, to hear this uh, specific answer. Thank you so much. We have a question in the back. Is, is the second one for this, this round, and then we do answers. Thank you so much. My name is Beata Poragi from Corvinus University of Budapest. And my question concerns the status of the Palestinian territories and the role of the International Court of Justice, which is currently uh, kind of considering whether this uh, is still occupation or maybe something else. And I don't know how much role do you attribute to this uh, process with regards to the future. I mean, will it make any difference, a second advisory opinion, or uh, it's just not so important at all? Very easy answers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think like all of us, when, you, when, it's, when it's very hard to answer a question and when everybody feels it's hard, it says something about the question, right? How do you inject life into a dead body? You kill it. I mean, I think you have to, you have to in this sense, I mean, we have to kind of, at some point, that's the, maybe the weird thing about Oslo, right? It's, everybody says the process is dead, but there's no obituary. No one officially says it's dead. It's like, how do you officially declare something dead? Who can officially declare something dead? Right? Which great international doctor, which state issues illegal death of the peace process? I don't, and that's very difficult, right? Because we can't do that, actually. We can't end it. And the only way to inject life into it is to rethink some of its premises, because we, there's no other way. But we're here. We're completely powerless, because we're stuck in the structures created by Oslo. But at the same time, we want to declare its death. And that's very hard. And also, on the ground, as you probably know much more than me, so many of the people depend on the structures created by Oslo, right? The PA funds so much. Uh, if you suddenly say, oh, we get rid of the PA, which is a quite nihilistic solution, it affects everybody on it only negatively. But there's no room to come up with creative solutions because, I mean, I think, and I hear I could blame our leaders because our leaders are also partaking in the, you know, regular revival of a dead body before declaring it dead. That's a very metaphorical answer to your question, and I apologize for this. But I think for us, is you, re, new paradigms is definitely the way to go. And that they no, are no longer ideas, but they, they become actual political projects. 
Like, what does it mean? Yes, we have a unity intifada, but what does this mean politically? Can we translate this into a political project? That's a lot of work that we have to do as Palestinians. And I clearly acknowledge that we are, there's a problem. I'm in the diaspora, you know, I can have come up with great ideas, but that's not enough. And they're not, I'm not saying that they are great ideas, I'm just saying I have a privileged position of only using ideas without engaging in actual politics. So I'm also partially to blame here as a member of the diaspora is what I'm tr trying to say. So transforming ideas into politics, but officially declaring the body dead, I think is, is, my, is my answer. About the international organizations, I'm not an international lawyer or someone who's, who's well-versed in these, but I will say one thing is that once the PA has understood that negotiations with, with the Israelis is no longer a thing, they've resorted to the strategy of let's try to create a Palestinian state as a legal fiction, right? I mean, we exist as a state. Legally, we have many governments. I think we, we have, but we don't have an actual state on the ground. And that's been the strategy of the PA because they realize they can't negotiate with Israel and Israel's not willing to negotiate. So they, they go to the International Court of Justice. They try to create sort of legal facts on the ground there. But, and then they negotiate that right, with the Americans. They're like, okay, we won't go to the International Court of Justice, but just give us something. And I'm, I think that becomes tiresome for the people because their cause ends up being reduced to weird legal issues in foras very far away from Palestine, and that alienates the Palestinian political process. So it's very, very important. I'm not minimizing that. I think it's crucial. right? But I won't put all my, my, my bets there. I don't, I, that's not where, as a Palestinian, I want to see a, few, a, a political process happening. Because it's very, it's very, yeah. So I'll just I'll put it at that. And, and it's interesting that, uh, just a small point, is that the, the, the way Palestinians are viewed in Iraq is also reflected in the different events that have happened in Iraq, which is super interesting and the subject of a ho another whole debate. Thank you for two very powerful presentations. Uh, my name is Trun Bakuik, and I'm from Oslo. Very much alive. <laughs> um, you are both touching on the issue of identity. And, um, but you do it in two different ways, because you either point to the future uh, of creating an identity through arts and culture and so on. While, uh, Nadim, you haven't said much, but there is a lot of work on Palestinian identity where history becomes a resource through uh, people like the Khalidis or Urmasala or my good friend Nasmi Juba. Um, uh, this is a resource, which a resource which is there so that Palestinians know they have an identity. They refused, as you said, um, to be governed by Jordan because it's a different identity. But how can history or the lack of history help uh, creating an identity which becomes a resource? for self-affirmation and struggle. That was my, if you have some, re it's a big question, but uh, if you have some reflections on that, because you approach it so differently. So while that sinks in, we have another question here. 
Cool, thank you. So I am a student at uh, UIO, the University of Oslo, uh, and I was a uh, pr uh, previously I was a um, an intern over here, uh, and now I'm taking uh, a course in um, a culture and society in the Middle East at the university. So one of my and we have been reading a lot of articles, academic articles about these topics, and that's why I'm here. Uh, so I have a question both to Aida and uh, to Nadim. And the first question for, I, and first of all, I really want to say thank you. Um, the first question to Aida is basically you were talking about the sectarian war uh, in Iraq. And you were also talking about how people are getting together and how they want change. But I was wondering how does um, tribes help or how do they eventually not help in situations to try to make the uh, the um, current state for um, Iraqis better today um, and then I have another question for uh, Nadim which is you were talking about you said that your dad was an architect and uh, that he was very sad when the buildings were destroyed and I was thinking, I have really much been thinking about all these places that are called refugee camps over in uh, the occupied areas, if that's a term that is allowed to be used. And um, I was wondering, how does that the, the term um, refugee camp in cities that are established, um, how does that create an idea about the identity or destroy it? How do people see themselves when they live in uh, like um, areas that are uh, considered refugee camps when they are really houses? We have to uh, finish here. We just have a couple of minutes, so big, big questions. Uh, and we have like, you know, four minutes to answer them. Uh, so do your best. <laughs> Please. Really quick on tribes. Um, so uh, tribal systems in Iraq um, still play an important role um, in uh, governance um, due to the lack of uh, uh, fair and transparent mechanisms available. If I'm honest with you, uh, they sometimes and it, it, and it's a real it's a real issue in Iraq where there's a sense that we have to include the tribes in negotiation processes, but at the same time, sometimes that that's problematic um, because tribal systems are opaque, uh, conservative in many time many cases, uh, and not necessarily reflective of the needs of all of society. Um, so, so we recognize that they exist and they're p they, they are part of the processes, but we also need to think about challenging those systems. Um, okay, uh, I'll try to tackle both issues in the two minutes that I have left. Um, so the identity and memory issue, it's very funny that you say that I don't, didn't talk about it because all my work is on memory. And today I was like, you know what, I'm going to just try <laughs> to change gears a bit and try to... So this is a... Um, but yeah, I fully agree, and I think just to point to some developments that are happening recently, I think like the the predominance of the Nakba as a, as a focal moment for all Palestinians. So the Nakba is you know what we refer to as 1948, the ethnic cleansing, the the separation of Palestinians from their land, and how this has evolved historically. And I think 
now more than ever, it has become such an important identity marker for Palestinians. Now, I will say this. There isn't one Nakba, right? We, 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 we commemorate as one event, but we should also be attentive to the different actors that commemorate it differently. Palestinians in Israel commemorate in a certain way. The PA has its own state-building agenda, and it uses the, the Nakba for that, and now it's trying to create a Nakba commemorative event at the UN. So there are still divisions in the memory, but the fact that this has become such a prominent identity marker now compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago, is itself quite relevant of the importance of the past to building memory in, in the future. And I will also say this, and now I'll just throw that, is I also think for me memory is important to imagine different futures, and that answers the first question about the ambassador. So I've been part of a project on the, the Holocaust and the Nakba, and, and how you could think productively about these two tragedies in their own right, and they're different, you know, we're not trying to, to equate them, but how they could be, there's room to rethink decolonial binational identities in Israel-Palestine as opposed to the kind of the, the models we have today. So I will say, and then to the second question about refugees, I mean, it's true, if you, if you think refugee camps and you think tents, and then you go to Palestine, you're like, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's been 70 years of refugeehood. You know, these guys are not going to continue living in tents to, to, to prove a point. But, so, but there is something about the identity of the refugee camp in the city, which is, so I grew up in Bethlehem. I have three refugee camps around me. And there are very separate areas. You know this. You don't enter the Heishe camp just to you know, hang out. You enter when you're invited by people from the Heishe because they know exactly who you are. Are you from the camp or not? And I had, when I was teaching, I was very fortunate that most of my students from, from the Heishe camp, so I had time, they were inviting me. I would go there. And what's interesting, I'll conclude with that, is that for them, the camp is also part of their identity. And they will say, yes, I want to have the right to return, but I want to bring the camp with me. And I was like, that's a very extremely powerful thing to say, where the camp, which is a symbol of dispossession, becomes a symbol of an identity that you want to reclaim in the liberated future. And, and so there's a lot to unpack here. Thank you so much. It's been a great event, I think. Uh, and uh, I mean, we could keep this discussion going for ages. Uh, as you said, I specialize in the diplomatic sphere that you talked a lot about. So, you know, I, I, I'd love to have just to, to talk about that. But it's been really, really intriguing and interesting and been great. Uh, so, thank you everybody for showing up and thank you to the panelists. Thank you.